Well, again, I want to welcome you this morning. And, uh, and especially, again, if you are a first-time visitor with us this morning, if you're just now tuning in, uh, we're really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you're here. And we would love to send you a free t-shirt as just a way to say thank you for joining us and taking a chance on us this morning, recognizing that uh, you, may, uh, you may have never been to church before, or you may have been someone who grew up in the church, and all this COVID stuff has just got you checking out churches again, and you found us somehow, and so uh, we're glad you're here. So just fill out that online connection card, um, and we'd love to send that to you. Uh, well, today we are in part two of an eight-week series on a single chapter of the Bible. One of the most uh, amazing chapters of the Bible because it gives such a clear window into the true heart of God for his people. So we are looking at Romans 8 for these eight weeks. And we just started this series last week, and we looked at just verse 1. And we looked at how God has made it possible for there to be no condemnation, no shame, no public disappointment or disapproval from him because of what he's done for us in Christ. So we've been freed from the penalty of sin once and for all. But not only that, as we're going to see in verses 2 through 4, God not only frees you from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I wonder if, you know, for you, Christian, I wonder if you were asked, you know, why did Jesus come down to this earth and live as a man and do what he did? I wonder if in your response, you would say anything about freedom, because the chances are you probably don't equate what Christ accomplished with freedom. You may, you may just feel bogged down and oppressed by the sense of duty and obligation and rules that come along with Christianity. Or you may, you may be saying, there's no way that God really could have set me free, not only from the penalty, but the power of sin, because I feel owned by it. I feel enslaved to sin. I feel trapped by it. So yeah, freedom is not the first thing that comes to mind. But also, for you who's not a Christian, I bet that you wouldn't equate freedom with Christianity, with religion in general, but Christianity in particular. I mean, us being here in the South, there is a good chance, and for some good reason, that you equate religion, and in particular Christianity, because it is the predominant you know, religion of the South, and is Christianity is actually the enemy of freedom. It's oppressive to the individual. There's a ton of seemingly arbitrary rules that a holy huddle of people keep, and they, they use that as ammunition to condemn the outside world. So no, Christianity is not a means of freedom. It is not the way to freedom. It is the enemy of freedom. 
Well, I'm here to tell you this morning from the Bible that that yearning in your heart that every person has to be free is one not only good, but it is one that God and God alone can fulfill. One that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can truly fulfill. So as we look at Romans 8, verses 2 through 4, we're going to do it in three sections. Big surprise. If, you, if you've been a part of Antioch for any time now, that's not going to surprise you. I've got three sections, all right? Nonetheless, here they are. First, first section, not being free. Not being free. Second, trying to be free. And third, how God sets you free. So not being free, trying to be free, and how God sets you free. All right? First, not being free. Romans 8.2 says this, the beginning of the passage that we're looking at this morning. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. All right, so... It's a little bit wordy, but essentially this is what it's getting across. The law, it's using using the word law there to mean power or authority. It starts to get complicated in in the first part of Romans 8 and then in Romans 7. Paul's being flexible with his, his usage of the word law, but here it most likely seems to mean power or authority. So he's saying the power and authority of the spirit of life the Spirit of God has set you free, has, and this, this is what occurred to me this week in my study, has set you free. Now, this is not something that God will do, but it's something that he has done. And what has he done? He set you free from the law or the power of sin and death, the authority of sin and its punishment and all that comes along with it, death. <clears throat> this is not something that God will do. This is something that he has done. God has through his spirit, set you free from the power of sin and death. That's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is really all about, is not only removing from you the penalty, you know, pardoning you from sin, but delivering you from its power. And again, sin, uh, sin simply means, most literally, missing the mark. But I think you can fill that out a little bit to see, okay, well, what is missing the mark? Well, missing the mark as we've been designed by God to to live and to operate is with him on the throne of our lives and hearts. And so living in sin, what that means simply is living with yourself on the throne, living for you and your little tiny kingdom of one. And, you know, to, to... to hear this verse and say, you have been set free from the power of sin. You know, especially if you're a Christian, you probably are thinking to some degree, yeah, that's, that's cool and all, but I don't feel that. I don't feel free from sin. I don't feel like I have mastery over sin. I may feel trapped by it, enslaved to it, or I just generally may feel like I just don't have control over it. Well, when you buckle together Romans 8, with what comes before it in Romans 7, things begin to get a little bit clearer. All throughout Romans 7, if you go back and read it, what you see is the Apostle Paul 
And the, uh, the Apostle Paul was, uh, he was someone who was, before he came to know Christ, he was an adamant persecutor of the church. He killed Christians. God changed his life radically, and now he, he became one of the first great missionaries of Christianity, and he just so happened to write about half of the New Testament. And what you see in Romans 7 is this guy, a, a giant of the faith, wrestling intensely with the reality that he does not feel free. He doesn't feel free from the power of sin. Romans seven fifteen puts it like this. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many of you identify with that? I know I do. I know that I do. I don't understand my own actions. I will do and say things that I, I didn't want to do or say. He goes on to say, you know, there's things that I want to do, but I, I can't find the will or the energy to do them. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That doesn't sound like freedom to me. That sounds like slavery. That sounds like being owned by the power of sin. And yet, when Paul turns the corner from Romans 7 to Romans 8, he says, in light of all of this, in light of this fact, this reality that I feel owned by my sin, there is no condemnation. And in the face of feeling enslaved to sin, I am not. I have been set free. Whether, whether you feel it or not, you have been set free. Now, we'll unpack that as we go, but regardless, you need to hear that. You need to hear that this morning, Christian. Now, there's another way to feel unfree, you know, because what, what, what can make, especially if you're a Christian, feel unfree is just feeling weighed down by the guilt and shame of habitual sin of just, or just in general, just the inability to act on the things you really want to do. I mean, aren't there so many things that deep down you wish you could, you, you wish you could do as a follower of Jesus, and yet you just, you just can't find the ability to do it? Well, that's one way, but there's another way to feel unfree, and this applies to you whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. There's a, a really well-known, uh, famous author, David Foster Wallace, who, uh, who wrote most of his, uh, his really popular works in uh, the 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, what I'm about to tell you uh, has nothing to do with my points. I'll, I'll get back to my point about David Foster Wallace, but I just have to tell you this, okay? So this is, a, a, I'm digressing here. Earlier this week, I was, uh, I was watching an interview with Bill Gates on how he reads and retains so much information. Because I'm like, I want to be, you know, I want to read more, I want to read faster. And, and so I was like, well, who's going to know how to do it? Bill Gates. 
So Bill Gates is doing this interview and he says, yeah, I have this rule that I won't start a book that I know I can't finish. And so he says, uh, you know, there's, and so the, I think the interviewer said, you know, so well, what's one of those books? And he says, well, I've got on my bookshelf Infinite Jest, which is David Foster Wallace's most famous book by far. It's just enormously long and the, the font is like tiny. There's like no margins. It's a dense book, fiction book. And he's like, I have it and I want to read it, but I just, I feel like if I start it, I won't be able to finish it. Well, when he's saying that, I, I was thinking, I was like, you know what? I, I read Infinite Jest like three years ago. Now, granted, it took me like eight months and reading like over half of it, reading it on audiobook, but I finished it. And so all that to say, I just wanted to, to, to be here to tell you this morning, what I learned this week is that I'm actually smarter than Bill Gates. So... Take that for what it's worth. That's what I learned about myself this week. Now, what is important to my point is this. David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. And most, um, most believe that he did not believe in a personal God uh, either. <clears throat> and he had this to say in a commencement speech at a university in 2005. Not a Christian. Listen to this. It's a little bit long but not too long. In the day, sorry, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that you pretty much, or sorry, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never, sorry, you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He goes on to say a little bit after that. And the insidious thing is that these things are unconscious. They are default settings. You aren't even aware of this. What does this mean? This means that as humans, every single one of us, we seek meaning, we seek significance, we seek importance from someone or something. Wallace just listed some of the main ones, money, power, sex, intellect. And those things, when we give them the ability, the access to give us meaning, what are we doing? We are bowing down to them. We are worshiping them. We're saying, you can give me something that I cannot get from myself. You can give me something that no one and nothing else can give me. And what happens when you do that? When you are bowing down to them, you must serve them. You must obey them. They become your master. And you become their slave. unconsciously default setting is to enslave yourself 
to masters who care nothing for you. It's easy in our day and age to think that what freedom means is being free from, from any constraint. David Foster Wallace himself goes on to explain that's not even really possible. It's not possible because you might say, well, I don't, I don't allow anything to give me, you know, my sense of significance. Well, you know what you're doing? You're a slave to your own individuality. You still do it too, even if you feel detached from everything. And you're probably pretty lonely. And you probably move around a lot. You probably don't have a lot of tight bonds to anything or anyone. And it's definitely not the way that God designed and created you to live. This is what we do when, um, when we find ourselves enslaved. This is how this works. Let me reset. That's not what we do when we find ourselves enslaved. That's, that is how this happens. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. This is how this happens. Now, this brings me to um, our second point of trying to be free. Trying to be free means not finding freedom from any rule or any constraints. Trying to be free means finding a ruler, a master, a Lord that you bow down to and worship who will not use and abuse you, right? Because money, power, sex, intellect, anything else you can think of, those things, when you fail them, they will punish you. And they never, they never get, I mean, th- how many Hollywood stars do we have to hear about who have money, power, sex, fame, everything you could ever want as a human, and yet they are empty, more empty than they were before. To, how, how many do we have to hear about before we know, before we realize and accept that those things aren't going to cut it? They are not going to free you. They are not going to free you. Finding freedom means finding someone or something that will not use you and abuse you, but will love, cherish, honor, embrace, heal, forgive, and liberate you. Who will actually set you free? Who will say, not your life for mine, but my life for yours. Now, I want to get us looking at uh, verse 3 in Romans 8. It says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That word law there most likely now means not a power, but the law proper, as in the Old Testament laws that God had for his covenant people, Israel, um, to set them apart to be a distinct nation so that they could be blessed to be a blessing to nations, which we know, looking at the Old Testament, they failed and they failed miserably at that. So this is saying that God has done what you could not do. God has done what you could not do. Of trying to set yourself free. God has set you free. That is what God could do that you could not do yourself. And he says, the reason that you couldn't set yourself free is that the law, which in and of itself is good, in and of itself is straight from God and is powerful, is weakened by the flesh. Now, the flesh, this is not just talking about your literal physical body. 
it's, it's talking about your natural moral capacity. It's talking about your earthliness, your naturalness, as opposed, because so often what the Bible, and this is what Romans 8 is doing, what the Bible does is it puts the spirit uh, in contrast to the flesh, the spirit of God. So this idea of the supernatural power presence of God from on high, from another world, versus what you in and of yourself have the resources and, and capability to do. So what it's saying, in and of yourself, even obedience to religious standards was not enough to free you. And so, you know, as we saw, you know, David Foster Wallace hit on how money and power, sex, those things, those gods, those pseudo-gods, um, they end up eating you alive. But there's a really subtle one that he doesn't mention, but that we see in this verse that is mentioned that eat you alive just the same, but if not more because of how subtle it is. And that ruler is religion. Religion. Religion can enslave you. Religion can oppress you. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, religion. When you try to do it in the flesh, within your own natural, normal, moral capacity, you will fail. And when you fail, you have two options. One, you give up. You, you just simply walk away. At some point, you say, this isn't for me anymore, and you walk away from the faith. Or you fake it you utterly fake it. You believe, okay, God's standard is this, and I'm constantly not able to figure it out. I'm constantly not getting there, and so you believe that you can fake it until you make it. Now, I'm going to get a little bit more real and direct with you. Do you know what that is? What, what that means that you are doing? You're being a hypocrite. Now, hypocrite in our time, uh, the, the way we use that word is just, you know, you're, you're someone who is um, you know, saying one thing but doing another. And you know where that word comes from? It comes straight from the Greek Roman time. It comes from a, a Greek word that sounds almost just like hypocrite. And up until just a couple hundred years ago, that word was not a social derogatory word. It was a theater word. It was a word that was used for, literally, it meant actor. And in the first century time, the way that they would do plays, live plays, was the way they would signal what character they were playing is they would put on this kind of oversized caricature ceramic mask. And hypocrite literally means interpreter from underneath. So you are playing a part from underneath this projection, which everybody knows, and you know too, isn't the real you. It's a mask. It's fake. And that's what ends up happening when you 
when you try to set yourself free by Christianity, by religion, you end up becoming fake. It ends up hollowing you out. You end up looking around and thinking like, I, I just don't have this figured out, so I'm just going to fake it. I'm, I mean, do you feel like you're just mimicking what other people do? Do you feel like you have any real power in your life, spiritual power? There's a good chance that you are wearing not only one mask, but many masks, layers upon layers upon layers of masks, that you are lying to yourself, you're lying to God. And this is, this is what this is inviting you to do by owning your powerlessness, your inability to set yourself free, is to let God take off your mask, is to let him take off the next mask and the mask after that and the mask after that so that he can set you free. Because real Christianity is so it is so much more than playing a part because that is, I mean, so easy to do in our culture. In the South, when this is the air that we breathe, Christianity, church, I mean, it is so easy to just fake it. And it feels easier. It feels easier. But religion is just like every other false master. It uses and abuses you you don't ever feel free, right? If, if you don't feel free, if there's a good chance that you have gone just a couple clicks to the left and you've missed the real Jesus. Doesn't mean that you're not really a follower of Jesus. It just means that you've, you, you've just missed and God is wanting to, re, he's wanting to course correct you a little bit with this. So let God take your mask off. Let him fill you up, fill up your hollowness. Let him break your hard mask down and soften you. Let him do that. Which brings us to the final section of how, how God can do this, how God makes you free. Well, as I mentioned, if being free isn't being free from all constraints, and all and any master because it's not really possible and being free means finding someone or something that will not use you and abuse you and punish you when you fail it and eat you alive and rather finding someone or something that will love you cherish you embrace you and liberate you how does god do that how do we find that There's two ways that God does this. There's two ways that God sets us free. There's two components of him setting us free. Let me say it like that. And here's what they are. The first is this. The God of the Bible is the only master that says, my life for yours. Romans 8.3 goes on to say, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. 
God sent his son. He released his son. And Jesus Christ, being the mediator between God and man, being fully God and fully man, gave up his independence for you. When he was nailed to that cross, he lost his freedom. He became a slave, not to his own sin, but to yours. He became a slave, not to the punishment of sin that he deserved for doing anything, but the punishment of sin, death, that you deserved. He willingly became a slave for you. He willingly gave up his freedom so that you could have freedom. Jesus Christ is the only God who, he's the only master, he's the only ruler, he is the only Lord that when you bow down and worship him and you fail him, he won't punish you. Why? Because the condemnation is gone. You've been pardoned. It's not hanging anything over your head. He is, he's not hanging anything over your head. Zero, it is gone. The sin that you feel condemned by cannot condemn you because Jesus Christ has condemned it. He has condemned your condemner. He has publicly disapproved of your disapprover. He has shamed your shamer. Which brings me to the second part of how God sets us free. He not only says, my life for yours, not your life for mine. Becoming not an abusive ruler, but a loving, gentle, gracious, humble ruler in our lives. But then secondly, he sends his very spirit to lead us into freedom. This section that we're looking at this morning ends with verse 4 saying that Jesus has done all of this. The reason he came, lived, died, rose was for this reason. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So wait, we're... Now we're talking about the, the, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled, obedience. I, I, thought, I thought Jesus fulfilled the law. I thought that God was saying that we were freed from that. That's the very point that I've been, we, you know, I've been making, that we're not freed from any constraints, that true freedom means having a ruler who puts the proper restraints so that you can live within the grain of what it means to be a human and not against the grain that God has done this to empower you to live righteously, not because that will pardon you from your sins, not because that will prove to God anything, but because this is actually, God has given you the spirit of Christ to make you like Christ. Right? That, that what God is doing is not simply rescuing us, but he's rehabilitating you. And this is not something oppressive. This is something that God is saying, this, I want to make you new. I want you to have the, the joy of knowing what it's like to live free. And living free means living for more than just the little kingdom of you. So this is how the gospel, this is how the gospel sets us free. It, it shows you the God who says, my life for yours, and then says, because my life for yours, live your life for me because I went first in sacrificing myself for you 
sacrifice your life for me. And when you do this, you find not a master who punishes you when you fail him, because you cannot fail him. You cannot fail him. No matter what you do, you find in that you want to know this God. You want to know this Jesus. You want to, you want to love him. You want to obey him. You want to resemble him out of grateful joy. And God has given his spirit to help you walk in this. His spirit is the one who takes the work of Christ from 2,000 years ago and brings the very person of spirits, or the very person of Christ into your hearts, brings him into your spirit, brings him into your life and makes him real to you. And day by day and moment by moment leads you to see Jesus in all of his glory, to see Jesus in all of his love, sacrificing himself on the cross so that you could go free. And as John 8 says, if the Son sets you free, 